What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode two of the Evan Lamb Show. I'm your host, Evan Lamb, and in this show, we explore current news and topics and learn more about the events influencing Taiwan and Greater China today. In this episode, we will be rounding the latest news of the past week, so the biggest highlights from this past week in Taiwan, and then we'll be talking about. The KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party. So the two biggest headlines of the past week in Taiwan are the rise of COVID-19 cases, and so we'll talk about that first. So the latest data in terms of COVID case counts in Taiwan uh, are um, a total of 65 new cases, 17 are local, uh, and then 48 are from.、Uh, Outside of the country, so from people traveling、uh, or actually returning to Taiwan. So of the seventeen cases、uh, that were local, fourteen、uh, of them actually come from a, a restaurant. I think they eat steak, so it's like Western food.、Um, this is pretty unusual for Taiwan because for a long time, up until like this past week, they've been basically having. Uh, no zero additional local cases. They've always had a little bit trickle of foreign、uh, cases from outside the country, but for this restaurant, this one single restaurant to、uh, cause fourteen、um, local cases is pretty unusual for Taiwan. I know it's nothing compared to the United States. You know, just like you know, we average like tens of thousands of cases per day in a city. But、um, yeah, so one restaurant caused fourteen cases. Uh, I think one person had the virus. They ate at the restaurant. Then it,、uh, you know, spread from table to table to table. And then、um, just today, well, technically yesterday for for Taiwan for January seventeenth, they had fourteen cases just from that restaurant. And then three cases、uh, elsewhere. Of the forty eight cases from out out of country, thirty seven are from long distance、uh, flights, and then eleven. Are from people who tested positive while while they were self quarantining in their home.、Uh, out of this forty eight, twenty eight cases are from the United States. So fifty percent of the case counts, the case positives、uh, from outside the country, are from the United States. And so I think most of you know that uh, for uh, the most part, you know Taiwan has had a pretty good reputation、uh, in terms of、uh, minimizing, you know. The the spread of the virus in their country, the、um, you know in Taiwan, and that, that you know that's been mostly true. I think for them it is easier than a lot of other countries to shut down their borders because they are an island nation, so they can easily limit the people coming in,、uh, you know, and then they can obviously if you come in, you're going to be coming in from the airports, you know, and then they have a pretty strict、uh, quarantine procedure. But it isn't perfect, so you know cases will come in. But usually, because of the quarantine or or for whatever reason,、um, they don't spread locally. Because in Taiwan, if you if you test positive, they send you to the hospital, even if you don't have major symptoms at all. Which you know is、um, is okay under regular circumstances. But it seems like if you're sending, like if you have a a sudden wave, like now, you know for the past seven days, the average has been sixty five cases a day. Uh, which is a lot for Taiwan.、Um, if you're sending everyone to the hospital when they have little to no sy- sy- symptoms, that's just taking up hospital beds, taking up hospital space, and and they don't have a special area or special hotel or hospital uh, for 
um, people who aren't necessarily really sick but are positive. Right? I think in in mainland China, when you have a positive case, you're sent to a special area, but not necessarily the hospital because you don't necessarily need hospital care. So that's what they really need right now because you know if these cases continue to rise and they send every single person who's positive to the hospital, the hospitals will fill up quick. I think in the U.S., you know, if if they if you say um, that you have some symptoms, they just tell you to stay at home for a couple of days. If it gets really bad, then go to the hospital. That's probably because you know our hospital system is strained. But also, like even if it wasn't, I think that would be seems to be the smarter thing to do to save resources. Um, but anyways, yeah. So the quarantine procedure overall is pretty strict in Taiwan. Uh, I think right now it's you once you arrive at the airport, if you're a long dis from a long distance flight. Um, so there's a certain range. But basically, if you're from the United States, you have to be tested upon arrival. Before that, they didn't want to test anyone from the United States, even though the United States has the most case counts in the whole world, um, because they said that the United States doesn't actually have that many cases, and they said something like France has more cases by percentage or by proportion or by per capita or something like that. But you know, it's just because the government doesn't want to make the U.S. angry, which is absurd because you're testing people. The only people who can go into Taiwan right now are uh, citizens of the ROC. You know, if you're American, you can't really go there as a tourist or anything. So you're just testing people logically because they have, you know, they come from uh, a country with a lot of COVID cases. But anyways, now they're testing them, uh, testing anybody who's a quote-unquote long-distance flight. And pretty much most of the people coming into Taiwan at that long-distance range are from the United States. So anyways, they they get tested upon arrival. If you're in a short distance flight, you know from the Philippines, Indonesia, um, anywhere closer, you don't get you don't need to get tested upon arrival. But you know, after you get tested upon arrival from the U.S., uh, everybody, no matter where you're from, goes into a quarantine hotel for seven days, um, and then you have to do no- numerous tests uh, in the in the hotel during during those days. After those seven days, you go to uh, your own home for seven more days self-quarantining inside your house and then during that time you still have to continuously report to uh you know send in you know how you're feeling or if you have any symptoms or anything and it's pretty strict i think you know even if you go in your own house and you have other people uh, living with you you have to be using your own bedroom you have to be using your own bathroom uh, stuff like that so it's, it's pretty strict you're not allowed to leave your house and then after that so the third week after you come back to the country uh, for one whole week you are allowed to leave the house but you can't leave the vicinity of the area you have to wear your mask and then you can't go to any uh, possible like events where there's going to be a lot of people uh, in your area so they actually can enforce this pretty well reasonably well because um, each little area or, or like sector uh, in Taiwan there's a person who is in charge sort of like a government official but like a very 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 super local official like he's basically your neighbor and then they are in charge of this small area um they will make sure that you uh, either stay in your house or you don't leave the area and so um that's a quarantine procedure is pretty strict but you know this new code this variant that is spreading in taiwan is also omicron so it spreads pretty quickly sometimes people get sick in the quarantine hotels because um the airflow there if the person is sometimes the, the virus travels through that like some people believe they travel through the airflow so even if you weren't sick before you might get sick uh in the hotel um 
And then, like I mentioned, the 14 out of the 17 local cases came from one restaurant, not even from the same party of people. And so the virus, the virus just travels super quick. So yeah, the average for these past, uh, this past week is 65 cases a day. And then the most recent case counts are 17 local cases, 48 out-of-country cases, uh, 28 of the out-of-country cases from the United States. All right, so that was the main thing, uh, one of the main uh, news that happened over the past week. The other was um, pretty sad. So uh, Taiwan, uh, the ROC, Republic of China Air Force, has uh, a variant of the F-16 fighter jet called the F-16V. They are the country with the most F-16Vs in the world um, because the United States doesn't want to sell them any of the newer jets. So uh, they actually just helped Taiwan upgrade their older jets into F-16Vs from F-16s. But anyway, there is a pilot who is training uh, and then he disappeared over the ocean. Uh, they later found the wreckage. They found some of his remains and they confirmed it was him. Um, and they just found the black box. So... They're gonna see, they're gonna try to see exactly what happened. They don't really know. I don't think they know, you know, how he how the accident happened. But basically, the plane crashed into the water, and then he uh, unfortunately did not survive, um, which is sad, you know, especially because the Air Force, the ROC Air Force, they have had six accidents over the past two years, resulting in thirteen pilots um, unfortunately dying. Uh, very, very unfortunate, you know, especially, you know, obviously for these families, um, you know, these, it's always horrible to hear about your son, uh, you know, or your, your child, uh, disappearing, you know, and some of these pilots have not been found, like they haven't found their remains today, today yet. Uh, but also because the Air Force, they, uh, don't have enough pilots, you know, they don't have enough people who are qualified to fly, um, the, the requirements for being able to fly are super, super high. Obviously, you have to have perfect vision. But aside from that, you have to go through a bunch of tests, a bunch, a bunch of, um, you know, requirements, qualifications. And, you know, not every pilot who goes to train makes it to that point where they can uh, fly, you know, just fly in general or fly a fighter jet. A lot of them, uh, they either can't fly because they don't pass the requirements or they... Um, yeah, basically the requirements are just super high and they don't have enough people. And so, uh, it's unfortunate, like over the past two years, they've lost 13 pilots. And, you know, when you hear about like mainland China sending their planes over to fly around, uh, Taiwan's ADIZ air defense identification zone, like almost every day or every other day, um, it's just a lot of strain on the air force for them to continuously go up, send pilots there, uh, just to monitor them every single day. You know, China has a lot more resources lot more pilots they have a lot more money uh, to send these planes up and so it's just tough on the airport but yeah so these are the two main things two major events um that happened in the past week uh so we'll just get right into our main topic of today which is talking a little bit about you know why is the chinese national party nationalist party the kmt Kuomintang, doing so so bad and what can they do to improve they are doing pretty bad. And why do I say that? So um, basically, of the past couple elections, the 2016 presidential election, 2020 presidential election, the 2021 referendums that I talked about in the last episode, the 2022, and then just recently, like last weekend, last weekend? Or two weekends ago? No, last weekend, yeah, last Saturday, I believe, 
there was a recall election for a legislature and then a by-election um, to vote for a new legislator to replace another one that had been recalled a couple months ago. And both of those, the KMT pretty much technically lost. Well, the recall election, they, they had uh, more votes uh, voting uh, for the recall than against, but they didn't pass the threshold. And then the by-election, they just straight up lost it. And you know, in Taiwan, it's like, if you don't have control of the central government, then you're, you're at a huge disadvantage, right? Especially if you have um, control of the legislature, you know, even if the president isn't your party, but because the president doesn't, doesn't have veto power, so the legislature has, you know, considerable influence, but obviously it still causes a lot of deadlock. And so ever since 2016, uh, the KMT hasn't had um, power over the central government. They have, right now they have jurisdiction, they have mayors, uh, over you know uh, the majority of the states and counties in the country um, but they don't control most of the major cities either so you know it's been uh, it's been tough for their party you know just for for a given context if you don't know what the party is um, the, the the KMT uh, was the party that technically uh, started around 1894 um, during China's Qing dynasty uh, under this man named Sun Yat-sen, and he basically led this revolution to overthrow the last dynasty of China, the Qing dynasty, and then set up a republic. And so the KMT overthrew the Qing dynasty, they set up the Republic of China, and then they were um, the dominant party in the Republic of China uh, from 1912 to um, 1999. So they were in power for a very, very, very long time. And during that time, they led China against the Japanese invasion and held off the Japanese invasion long enough for the Allies to uh, attack Japan. They fought the communists. They lost to the communists. So in 1949, they relocated the entire Republic of China government to Taiwan. Uh, in Taiwan, they um, basically built up the entire country again. And so they had huge, huge infrastructure projects that were very successful. They had huge land reforms that were very successful. They built up the economy. They built up uh, commerce. Um, they built up industry. They uh, they were you know they did put the country under martial law for um, basically in, from like forty nine until early nineties. Um, you know, and a lot of people were persecuted then because they were speaking out against the government. You know, but eventually they did usher in uh, a democratic government. And so they have a long history in the minds of people from mainland China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, basically anybody you ask who is Chinese and sort of knows a little bit about the country and its history, they know who the Chinese Nationalist Party is. They have had a long and significant history. But recently in these couple elections, they've just been beaten again and again and again. You know, and that compared to, to the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, the party that is in power, the party that has won basically almost almost every single election except for 2018, uh, since 2016, uh, they are they just look pretty sad. And um, you know why does that matter? Because in the Republic of China, there is basically a two party system. Uh, there are numerous numerous other uh, opposition parties or minority parties, but they're very small. They're pretty small compared to the KMT and the TPP. And the KMT. In its role right now is the largest opposition party 
And for democracy to function, you have to have you have to have an opposition party that is big enough to go against the the uh, the party that is in power. Because if you have one dominant party and all the other parties are just useless, basically it becomes an autocracy where one party, one person, the president, has all the power uh, to make decisions, to enact laws, to change laws, to to change society the way that he or she wants it. And so basically right now, the KMT is not having a large enough influence and impact on the system, and the DPP is doing anything they want. And it's becoming an autocracy because the president has so much authority and not enough opposition. And that's just the way a democracy is. You have to have opposition. You have to have accountability. You have to have somebody who can check you, check and balance. You know, It's not just within government, but also within uh, parties um, and within different groups in, in, in the population. And so for the Republic of China to be a functioning democracy, the KMT, before it becomes the ruling party in the future, you know, potentially, they have to at least be a good opposition party, a strong opposition party. And they're not for a couple of reasons, uh, logistical uh, and, you know, in terms of philosophical and ideological, they're lacking in all three things. Logistically wise, there's just, they're not unified because the central party, um, they, they're located in the capital. So in Taipei, Taipei, but they don't have enough connection with any of the other offices uh, around the country. Um, so a lot of times you hear about these local offices, they're so uh, disappointed that they're not receiving enough enough communication from the central office. And so because of that, there's a lack of a unified message. A lot of times the central office is doing their own thing uh, without notifying the locals. Um, so compared to the DPP where everything is everything moves as one body, from the president down to the local offices, they have the same rhetoric, the same message, the same campaigning, the same um, you know political actions. The KMT is just disorganized. The central is doing one thing, the locals doing their own thing. A lot of times, the locals and individuals are able to reach people better, but they don't have the support or the funds uh, or the same uh, unified rhetoric as the central office. And so, um, party stances. You know, major policy announcements are sometimes just not unified. Like recently, uh, the, uh, the government uh, basically is planning to allow Taiwan to import uh, food from um, Japan. I think it's uh, Fukushima Island. Yeah, so Fukushima Island, they have food, you know, uh, but their food basically... Um, a lot of people fear it's it's uh, radioactive uh, because of a nuclear disaster, and so the government, because they're there, the the DPP wants to import um, this nuclear or radioactively uh, affected food. Uh, the KMT chairman sort of told the reporters that he was okay with it as long as they ensure its safety, which is which angered a lot of other KMT people because. The KMT has always been against this uh, this food. Like anything that is possibly radioactive uh, or dangerous, they have been against. They've either like they've enacted policies in the past to ban these imports. And so, for the chairman, for the central party office to go out on a limb and say it by themselves made a lot of people angry. So, 
That's what I'm saying. Like, there's a lack of a unified message. There's a weak connection between the central party and local offices. Like, the structure in itself is really weird. So you have the central central party, and the central party you can vote like different representatives to go to the central party, but nobody really knows what these representatives represent. Um, and the central party is just disconnected from a lot of the rest of the country compared to the DPP, where you have starting from the bottom you have factions like different small factions, and these different factions all have representatives. And then these representatives uh, all have their representatives and eventually goes all the way to the top to the president or the, the uh, chairman. And the president's DPP, so she's the chairman of the party right now. And so there's a huge connection from, from the factions, the faction leaders, to their leaders, to their leaders, all the way to the top. And so everything, all the communication goes from up, from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. And... The different representatives in the central office of the DPP um, party, these representatives are all representatives of these factions. The KMTs, they don't have these factions. They have one faction, uh, but that faction sort of disconnected from the rest of the party. And so um, not saying like factions are good for democracy, because sometimes if you have too many factions and the factions have the most power, you end up just enacting policies or doing things to protect these factions and not actually protect people who are not involved in these factions. And so Gypsy comes like factions against factions and factions making policies that affect the whole country. But it's just saying that the KMT doesn't have the structure. They don't have this chain of communication or command from top to bottom that the DPP has and which makes them more efficient in communicating and in action. Um, the KMT also needs, you know, they, they need a good strategy for the end of the year election. Uh, so we, they said they're they're going to announce these, they're going to plan these after the Chinese New Year, which is the end of this month, beginning of February. And so we, you know, we'll really see like what they what they do. The end of the year election are local elections. So for mayors of different cities and um, uh, counties. So like I said, currently the KMT controls most of these, uh, like 14 out of 21 of these. Um, but they need to control the major cities, more of the major cities uh, like Taipei City. Uh, like Taoyuan City, these are the two biggest that they can control, that they have the opportunity to um, win this coming election. So the capital and then uh, the, the other big city close to Taipei. And so to do that, you know, what are they going to do, right? They need to work with the right people. Uh, they also have to figure out, you know, how to work with local groups, local parties, local party offices, Um they just have to have a unified strategy because even though these are local elections, uh, oftentimes they sort of work a lot more like national elections. Um, and the reason I say that is because from the past couple uh, by elections that we've seen of, uh, you know, single elections to vote a new representative to fill the chair of somebody who was recalled, the DPP have, they have been encouraging or sending, you know, people who are generally in the younger demographic who are studying or working in uh, other cities like major cities like Taipei, and they've been asking them to fly back to their to their uh, home county uh, or residence to vote f in that by election. And so you have people coming from who who don't necessarily live there anymore, but they come from other cities. They're still registered in the area, flying back to their home, voting for. Um, a, a the representative uh, but then you also have local residents voting for representatives and that that makes things a bit more complicated because the people who are flying in to vote they don't always necessarily vote 
um, for a candidate who can benefit that area the best because it doesn't affect them because they don't actually live there uh, for most of the time. But they're voting, they're coming in to vote either by party or by ideology. And so a lot of these, so for the local election, you know, it's not so much localized anymore. It's not just, you, know, you just, you don't have, you can't just campaign to the people in the area, but you really have to reach out. You really have to have a unified front in all areas. Um, so that doesn't matter where you are voting, but just across the country, like if it was a national election, that your party is doing the best it can to uh, to have the best strategy in to win. Um, another thing that like logistically that has that has um, really seemed interesting is that in a lot of these elections, including the 2020 presidential election, including the 2021 referendums, including the 2022 recall election and by-election, the KMT is always, you know, if we were just looking at the polls, which are unreliable, you know, as an American, I'm sure Americans know this, but polls always show that the KMT or the policy or the person that they're supporting always uh, is, is, has the more support in the beginning. But like towards the end, you know, like closer to the actual election date and on the actual, actual election, the KMT always ends up losing. So why is that? It's like, are they losing steam? Are they not being unified? Um, is it something the DPP is doing? Is it something the KMT is doing? That's something that they have to figure out. And then, of course, like how can they reach the middle class? You know, should they focus more on welfare issues, the rising cost of inflation, uh, not enough, not high enough salaries or wages? Or, you know, should they be focusing more on ideology issues like the, issue, the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China, issues on identity of the country? Um, since that affects everything, all the politics in Taiwan, you know, how much should they be quote unquote fighting, right? Should they be super, super active? Um, or what's the word? Should they be super um, present? Or, or uh, you know, can you tell that they're going out on the streets and protesting? Or are they blocking legislation to go through by force? Um, you know, I'm sure a lot of you may have seen, you know, videos of people actually fighting in the legislature. That was started by the DPP back in the day when they were minority parties. And so should the KMT also do that more often? Uh, will people um, be turned off if they see the KMT like being super, you know, uh, like out there, like physically, uh, you know, blocking things from happening or protesting, you know, or would they prefer the KMT to be a bit more civil in their methods? Um, do things in a more conventional way, you know, these are all things that they have to think about logistically. So these are all important things. But, you know, I think there are more and more voices saying that the KMT has to figure out their philosophical and ideological views before they focus on these um, elections. And what that means is, you know, if you're a party, if you're, uh, you know, I guess in anything, if you're doing something, you can either focus on you know, what you're doing, or you can think about why you're doing it, what your purpose is, you know, what your goal is. And then once you establish these things, focus on the actual action, um, which is easier said than done. But because like, if you only focus on the action, you know, if you don't have the motivation behind it, if you don't have the right motivation, if you don't have the right purpose, if you don't know why you're doing it, then why are you doing it in the first place? And will you even do it well? And that's the same thing here, right? A lot of people are saying, you know, if the KMT just focuses on elections and focuses on winning, they're not going to win the hearts of many people because the party has no 
ideology. They have no, uh, they're not inspiring the people. You know, whereas the DPP, their ideology is to be anti-China. That's their ideology. Anti-China for the sake of protecting Taiwan. That's what they, that's their shell. That's what they cover themselves in. Uh, so whenever they enact any policies, basically it's guided by that general principle. But the KMT doesn't have that. The KMT, they, uh, to many people, they seem like they don't have any ideology, which is definitely uh, very uh, disappointing to their supporters because the KMT is supposed to be the party, the party in, uh, in greater China that has the ideology to follow. You know, they were founded... They founded the country, the entire Republic of China country, on the three principles of the people. Uh, and the, the three main principles are Minsu, um, Minchen, and Minsheng. So Minsu is basically the idea of one country, of a unified ethnicity. Sometimes it's translated as nationalism. So that's why in English, they're called the Chinese Nationalist Party. But basically, it's the idea that, and this idea was not prevalent before, um, before, you know, the uh, 20th century, um, the idea that of all the ethnicity groups, whether you're Han, whether you're uh, from, you know, you're Manchurian or you're Mongolian, uh, you're uh, like Tibetan, or, you know, um, or you're Hakka or whatever, you, the, these are all unified as one country. They're all Chinese people. And it's one country. And, you know, this, this country has to stand up together, has to work together. Uh, they can't. Let, they cannot let other, you know, Western imperialism uh, break them down. You know, and you know, China has so many people in its population as one nation that it has such a great potential. So that was the first one, nationalism. The second one, Minchin, is like power to the people. You know, that uh, involves like separation of power in government. So the government in the Republic of China is five five different uh, like offices. Um, but also it means power to the people. It's a democratic country. Uh, people have the right to vote. And so there's actually a very famous phrase um, that the founder of the country said, which is Tianxia Weigong. And if you actually, if you go to Chinatown, uh, a lot of Chinatowns in the U.S., they have that like on a big gate. When you walk in, you can see those four characters. Basically means power resides in the people under the heavens. Um, so people have the right to vote. And then the last one, Minsheng. Uh, which is translated a lot to welfare, um, basically implying that people have the right to uh, live um, the life, live, they have the right to live, they have the right to um, pursue, uh, you know, the things that they want to do in life, um, that the government should uh, care for its people, um, and that societies should survive. And so these three principles the principle of a nation, the principle of uh, democracy, the principle of living, like a certain level of living standards uh, that people want to pursue and that they should be able to have. These are the three main principles that the KMT was founded on. But, you know, are they really still pursuing these principles? Are they communicating these principles to the modern generation? Um, you know, that's a really, that's a big problem. And I, I don't think so, because if you're talking about one nation, obviously that's really hard now that the mainland China and Taiwan are separated. Um, and so that's a dilemma. In terms of democracy, uh, in terms of right to the people, you know, I think some people in the party are really trying, the legislatures, the state uh, council members, you know, they're out there, 
they are voting, they're doing everything they can, um, but they don't have the numbers to affect the central government enough. And so as the government is expanding their reach, like for example, last year, the DPP government, or two years ago, the DPP government shut down a major news broadcasting uh, channel because they were speaking out against the government, but the KMT didn't have enough power to stop that. Um, and in terms of welfare, uh, is KMT pr promoting welfare? You know, the KMT has to understand that the, their, their founding principles are not necessarily the same as, you know, the United States. I think social welfare in the sense that we're talking about here is a lot more um, left-leaning and, you know, where the government is supposed to provide for the people to a level that may exceed um, how much you know, the government's providing for people in the United States. And so in the KMT, they have to realize that their founding principles uh, are not necessarily the same as outside countries. And they have to understand what these founding principles are. You know, if they do not advocate for the three principles of the people that they were founded on, then this party is, doesn't, is, isn't uh, built on its foundation anymore. And so aside from like ideological values, that they have to establish and that they have seemed to have forgotten. Um, they also have to come to terms with history. The common rhetoric for history of the KMT and for the Repub Republic of China these days are that Chiang Kai-shek, uh, who was their leader um, for uh, most of the time they were in the mainland up until the 70s in Taiwan, was a military dictator who massacred a bunch of people. But is that the full truth? He probably did kill a lot of people. But like, who did he kill? Why did he kill them? I'm not saying killing is correct, but we have to understand the historical context here. What are the things that he was able to do for Taiwan? Right, for mainland people to criticize Chiang Kai-shek, that that's sort of fair. I mean, he he left them behind. He lost the civil war. Uh, to be honest, for a lot of the times, the government while it was on mainland was pretty corrupt. But you know, once Chiang Kai-shek took the government here to Taiwan, Taiwan was his. You know, was the only place that he could build up that he wanted to make into a model country that the rest of China could aspire after. And so he really poured it, everything into um, establishing his government, establishing the country in Taiwan. And so what are those things that he did that were positive for the people? You know, so instead of just talking about, you know, we do have to acknowledge the people that were persecuted in, during the government, by the government, um, the people that were killed, but also what did he do for the society? What did he do to build up the bank, the economy, the infrastructure, and his son, this, this, the uh, second president after him, you know, the 10 infrastructure projects? Why did he um, pursue those projects? You know, why did he open up the government? Why did he lift the restrictions on other political parties um, and, and transition the government into a democracy? The KMT has to understand this history. You know, when the, when the common rhetoric by the DPP by other um, people outside of the country, by like foreign media, when the common rhetoric is always the KMT used to be a militaristic dictatorship party, uh, and now they are always uh, trying to sell out Taiwan to the Chinese communists. When the KMT is faced with this accusation, you know how sh how can they respond? You know how can they come to terms with their own history, but also understand the benefits, the, the what they've done for this country? You know. When people talk about the KMT and when they accuse them of being super anti-communist in the past, I mean, fighting the communists, always saying that they're going to destroy the communists, but now they seem to be allied with the communists. 
can the KMT respond? Uh, what's their current stance on uh, the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China? Like, nobody has an answer for that. The party doesn't have an answer. They just have status quo. But that doesn't mean anything to people who, who find, the, find the DPP stance a lot more clear, which is just anti-China. You know, is the KM, are the KMT going to say they are straight up going to say pro-China? Uh, or what else are they going to say? Like these things they have to establish, you know, ideologically before, um, before they focus more on, you know, how to win the election. Because if you have your ideology right, if you can inspire people because of your ideological stance, then, you know, people will vote for you. Um, and then also the, the KMT has to understand why do they exist as a political party in today's government. A lot of the times they say that we won't um, get involved in this election because we want to let the people decide. But is that even a responsible stance? What does that even mean? Like in, in the US, in US politics, will you ever hear Republicans say that they're not gonna enter this local election, they're not gonna enter a policy fight because they want the people to decide? You know, what is the role of a political party in this position? Isn't the political party supposed to unify people who have the same political stances to push for a certain um, policy or an agenda to, uh, and, you know, especially given the KMT's history, they have been leading the Chinese people for so long or people in Taiwan for so long. How can you say now that you're just going to let people decide and that you have no say in this, that you just want to let people decide to avoid a political standoff? Every single thing that happens in politics is a political party standoff between two parties. Even if you say that you don't want a political standoff, which is fair, I can understand where the party's coming from. The other party is not going to think so. If the KMT steps back, the DPP is still going to attack them no matter what. So the KMT is involved in this war that they cannot get out of. Um, so they, they can't just say that they want to leave it up to the people to decide and then not do anything about it. And they want to avoid a standoff between two political parties and not do anything about it. Because the, the political party's standoff is going to happen either way. And when a people doesn't, when in a, in a democracy, if people don't have a political party to lead them, then who's going to lead them, right? Individual people, even groups of people, they don't have the resources, the structure, the uh, ideology to, um, to do these things without, this, without an established political party. If the KMT decides to step back, to lie flat, to not do anything about future political fights, then, like I said, the government is going to become an autocracy. You know, especially in Taiwan, where a simple majority, you know, basic majority in the legislature is enough to pass different laws and stuff like that, where a minority party has to have enough influence, you know, by themselves and not necessarily based on just the structure of the government. The, the, the minority, the opposition party has to have enough influence so that the government be, doesn't become an autocracy. In the United States, you know, right now the presidency is Democratic, the Congress is Democrat, um, but the Republicans have so much influence still, right? I mean, that's partly because in the United States, a simple majority doesn't get you enough votes, but also because the Republicans, they're just well-organized, they are um, unified, even if it's, you know, not necessarily unified under, you know, a policy or a rhetoric that most people agree with that are not Republican, but they're unified, they work together. The Democrats still have to consider Republicans as they're making legislation. You know, in the Republic of China, the KMT has to do the same thing. They have to be enough of a force to keep the majority party in check. If they decide to do nothing, then it's just one party, 
one system uh, and just becomes an autocracy under the label of a democracy. Um, and at that point, it's, it's just not really by the people anymore. And so the KMT has to realize that they can't just not do anything. They have to take a stance. They have to spread their ideology. They have to spread their philosophy. They have to be unified. They have to work together. Um, and they, have to, they just have to be able to say and plan out what they want for the country. Past the 2022 election, past the 2024 election, what do they want the country to become? Do they want the country to become more democratic? Do they want the country to have, do they want the people to have higher wages, to have uh, low, you know, not as bad inflation? Do they want the country to um, have more social welfare, you know? And then on a bigger level, what do they want the country to be in terms of their relationship with mainland China? Are you actually going to push for re eventual reunification uh, like your stance is right now? And what does that mean? Eventual reunification under what circumstances? You know, as mainland China is continuously amping up rhetoric about how Taiwan's part of China, how they're going to reunify Taiwan with China under the People's Republic of China, under a one country, two systems policy, what is the KMT going to say to that? Do they agree with that? Do they not agree with that? These things are things that you have to make clear to people, you know, as a responsibility as a political party, you know, as a responsibility to your history as a major influence in the Chinese nation over the 21st and 20, over the 20th and 21st century, uh, over, as a responsibility to your supporters, as a responsibility to the Republic of China, the country that you founded, you know, what are you going to do? If the KMT loses the 2022 election, local election at the end of this year, then it's hardly, hardly imaginable that they'll win the 2024 presidential election. They won the 2018 local elections in the last round, but they lost the 2020 election. So if they don't win this local election this year, it's almost impossible that they'll win the presidential election in 2024. And at that point, they'll be out of power from 2016 to 2024, um, a full eight years. And I guess that's a lot for a, a country that's relatively new. I mean, in the United States, like, uh, when was the last time? Like, usually how it goes is you say, like, if you elect a Democratic president for his first term, Congress tends to be also a Democrat. Um, but for a second term, uh, the legislature, uh, Congress often flips to becoming Republican, at least in the Senate. And then it causes deadlock, right? I think that was what happened with Obama. Uh, and then for Trump, you know, halfway through his term, the Congress flipped to being Republican, uh, flipped to being Democrat, right? But in, in the Republic of China, from 2016 all the way till now, it's all been DPP. If 2024, it's all DPP. In, if 2024, it's all DPP too, then the KMT would have been power, would have been out of power exact, like entirely for about eight years. And then at that point, you know, it's going to be so, so hard for them to be relevant as a, as a major force. Um, and so they really need to get their act together. If they get 2022, they might get 2024. Um, but at the very least, you know, they'll establish that they are still a strong political force that the DPP should be wary of. And it's not impossible. You know, they just have to get their act together. And so, um, yeah, dude, Chinese Nationalist Party, KMT, Kuomintang, you, uh, you uh, you uh, gotta gotta get your act together. Gotta make sure, like, even if you're not their supporter, you shouldn't want an autocracy. If you are a supporter, you obviously want them to do better. And so, for for their country, for their supporters, uh, for for their democratic system, they gotta step it up. But yeah, um, that's it for this episode. I uh, just wanted to say uh, thank you for listening again.
and um, hopefully COVID gets better in the United States soon. Uh, I think the peak in Omicron hasn't, we haven't reached the peak yet, according to our uh, Surgeon General, but uh, hopefully we do soon. Hopefully in Taiwan, it doesn't get too much worse because it's Chinese New Year soon. And so it'd suck if everybody was quarantined at home during COVID and Chinese New Year. But yeah, I hope you guys uh, have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.